Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed-indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the field of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focused topic, and through YJBM podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue's subject matter. This episode is part of our series devoted to our June 2020 issue on medicinal plants. I'm your host, Kelsey Castle, a third-year graduate student in the Epidemiology of Microbial Diseases, and today we are interviewing Dr. Jordan Sloshauer, a psychiatrist and researcher in the Department of Psychiatry at Yale University. His research and clinical interests focus on therapeutic applications of psychedelic substances, and in particular, how, how psychedelics can be combined optimally with psychotherapy and other healing modalities to treat a variety of conditions. Jordan is the co-founder of the Yale Psychedelic Science Group and is currently an investigator and therapist in two clinical trials of psilocybin-assisted therapy in the treatment of major depressive disorder. This research investigates potential neurobiological and psychological mechanisms of action, namely induction of neuroplasticity and psychological flexibility. He's also a clinical investigator in MAPS Expanded Access Program for MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. His perspective is informed by prior training in medical anthropology and global health and deep interest in ethnobotany, Buddhist philosophy, yoga, meditation, and integrative approaches to wellness. It seems like your background has sort of been building towards this current field of study. Would you like to expand on that more and tell us how you became interested in this? Sure, Kelsey. Thanks for for having me here. I'm uh, excited to be here. So the story sort of goes back to college. I was interested in, uh, became interested in Buddhist philosophy and meditation and consciousness at that time. I was also studying uh, bioanthropology. Um, and as part of that, had, had an interest in ethnobotany or the relationship between humans and plants and how they use them. Um, around that time, I read some of the, the classics like Carlos Castaneda's Don Juan, Ayaki Way of Knowledge that discusses some of the uh, uses of psychoactive plants uh, there, but uh, never really had a sense that it would be part of my career until much more recently. So after college, I went on to study medical anthropology, which really was a game changer for me. Um, it gave me a critical perspective on things like the current health system and Illness, uh, illnesses and treatments such that uh, we, I was trained to see health problems as intric intricately linked to social, economic, and political problems. So I also, uh, through that kind of study, gained a critical view of our current modes of diagnosing and treating uh, mental health problems um, and got very interested in global health and looking at different medical systems and healing practices around the world. So when I came to medical school, I sort of had that focus of global health and uh, was very interested in social justice in, in global health and expanding access to care, and also in integrating anthropological approaches to global health. So to really adapt uh, treatments uh, to local context, so bringing kind of a public health and anthropology perspective together, uh, as well as more conventional medical and psychiatric approaches. So that was uh, what I was really focused on, was working in Nepal at the time, um, and it was, it was great work, but it was, feeling, it was feeling pretty far away from me. And when I was entering residency, I started seeing more and more news about the use of psychedelics in, the, in mental health treatments, uh, in particular with psilocybin. And this was of immediate interest to me based on all of my, uh, the background that I discussed already. Um, and from there, thing, one thing sort of led to the next, we formed the Yale Psychedelic Science Group, started uh, just, you know, having a group of people discussing this area uh, seemed like it had a tremendous amount of not only clinical promise, uh, but I was very intrigued by the, the model of care that it was suggesting, which was quite different from standard psychiatric care. 
And also, uh, in particular, I, I felt called to get become a part of it because I saw that it would require interdisciplinary approaches to actually implement these kind of techniques similar to the global health work. I felt that uh, combining, you know, knowledge in psychiatry and, and mental health with also uh, anthropological approaches and public health approaches were going to be important, uh, given the strong cultural and historical legacy of these, these compounds and needing to sort of serve as a translator between multiple different fields of knowledge to really bring these treatments uh, to bear today. So um, given all of that, why, I, you know, you initially approached me and said, do you, can you tell an interesting story about this field and the use of botanical psychedelics in, in medicine? And so I thought I would give a bit of an overarching sort of story of what's, been, of what's happened and where the field is, and that can kind of contextualize the rest of our conversation. Uh, because really the, the field of psychedelics is very complex and there's a lot of different things happening at the same time. Um, and clearly we can get into the research that I'm doing, which is sort of one piece of what's happening, but just to give a uh, broader context. So, I mean, the story really has to start with the fact that psychedelic plants, such as psilocybin mushrooms, which I guess are a fungi and not a plant, but uh, other plants like psychedelic cacti, peyote, and San Pedro, and ayahuasca. Um, these plants and fungi have been used by cultures around the world for thousands of years, if not in some cases like ayahuasca, maybe shorter, maybe several centuries, but still have a long cultural legacy of use for ritualistic and healing purposes by you know, multiple different groups using them for different purposes a lot uh, has been studied on this, uh, but in the scientific discourse often, uh, I think this cultural history is not discussed so much in the, you know, the story kind of tends to start more when these compounds entered the purview of Western science. So that sort of took place. There was a little bit of research on the mescaline containing cacti in the late 19th century, but really the research on psychedelics really took hold after the discovery of LSD in 1943 uh, by Albert Hoffman and, and then the subsequent isolation of psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in so-called magic mushrooms in 1957. And so that sort of spurred this initial first wave of scientific and psychiatric research that, that happened in the field. Um, and there was, you know, it was interesting uh, scientists at the time really were trying to figure out what these compounds were. What, what did they do? Like, what were they? And, it, uh, you know, there was a whole range of different terms that were developed in different models. You know, some people thought they were so-called psychotomimetics or producing a psychosis-like state. Uh, the, the government thought maybe they could be used for mind control. And we know there was experiments about that. Um, some people thought that it maybe mimicked the state of delirium tremens in alcoholics. Um, and then eventually people thought that they could, uh, these compounds could be used as adjuncts to psychotherapy and started seeing that uh, potentially these substances could induce spiritual or mystical type experiences. So there was a, you know, a lot of research trying to figure out how to use these compounds. And, and again, interestingly, I think a lot of this took place kind of devoid from the, the, the more indigenous uses and they didn't really look to the cultures where they were used to actually figure out what these compounds were or how they could be used. It was kind of like dropping them into a blank slate in the scientific lab and trying to figure out how they could be used. How did they end up there if not through somebody like knowing that it exists in a culture and then, and then convincing scientists that they should also be investigating it? Yeah, there was a whole story around Gordon Watson and the Life magazine. He would travel down to Mexico and okay. uh, uh, had an experience with magic mushrooms and then uh, eventually brought, I don't know if he brought them back, but it gained a lot of publicity uh, because it ended up in Life magazine. 
And this is with uh, Maria Sabina, who's one of the now famous uh, mushroom shamans from that, that era. And so that sort of kicked off the, the scientific interest and eventually Albert Hoffman isolated psilocybin as okay. the active ingredient um, years later. So there, there, there was that, that tie, that's, that's true, but I, I think LSD, which was fully synthetic, uh, was also not uh, really contextualized. And even the earlier studies with the mescaline cacti mm-hmm. um, in the early 1900s also were just kind of giving people in the lab and trying to characterize the effects in a lab and didn't really take into account uh, how they were used ritually by various cultures. So, I mean, nonetheless, I mean, a lot of research happened in the 50s and 60s with these substances. Uh, They were studied extensively for their potential to treat mental disorders uh, and to facilitate psychotherapy. And there were, I think, even thousands of papers published. Um, But then in 1970, all the classical psychedelic drugs, including LSD, psilocybin, DMT, um, we're all classified as Schedule One drugs of abuse. Um, I'm not going to get into the whole history of that. It was uh, at least largely motivated by political reasons more than scientific ones, really, but it, it effectively brought a lot of the research to a halt. Um, and that was really up until the last 10 years or so, there's been a, a real revitalization of interest in the therapeutic use of psychedelic substances, both among scientists and the general public in the West, uh, at least. And so, you know, on the, on the one hand, on the research side, there's been a number of phase one and two trials um, suggesting that psilocybin treatments uh, generally combined with psychotherapy have, may have therapeutic potential in a, across a range of mental disorders, especially depressive disorders and substance use disorders have been looked at quite a bit. Um, and psilocybin was granted breakthrough status by the FDA as a treatment for major depressive disorder and treatment-resistant depression last year. And the phase two, phase three uh, registration trials are now underway, meaning that if those trials are successful, it could lead to the rescheduling and medicalization of psilocybin as a treatment. And similarly, MDMA, uh, which is also a synthetic uh, psych- psychedelic or empathogen, sometimes it's referred to, uh, uh, using MDMA with psychotherapy for PTSD, that also was granted breakthrough status and those trials are, are underway. And so what this means is that certain psychedelic substances are on the brink of medicalization, rescheduling and commercialization, commercialization which raises quite a few uh, ethical issues, which which we can discuss. And then just to fill out the landscape, you know, that's kind of what's happening in the research world. But at the, at the same time, there's really been a resurgent interest in the more traditional and ceremonial uses of psychedelic plants, um, which often referred to as, so, as plant medicines um, by some of the communities that use them. Um, and this includes the psilocybin mushrooms, ayahuasca, peyote, San Pedro. Um, so there's, there's increased interest amongst the general public, you know, in these substances for a variety of reasons, for recreation, for consciousness exploration, for healing, for performance enhancement. Um, you know, there's a trend now uh, called ayahuasca tourism in which thousands of Westerners travel to the Amazon basin each year to partake in ayahuasca ceremonies. There are legal ayahuasca churches that were formed initially in Brazil, which now are globalizing, uh, including here in the US, and those actually have uh, religious freedom protection, similar to uh, the Native American church, which has uh, protection to use peyote in ritual contexts. So you have that expanding, and then at the same time, you have quite a few social movements uh, happening in the US seeking to decriminalize or legalize or regulate psychedelics. Uh, These are sort of more through ballot initiatives rather than through the FDA process. So last year we saw Denver and Oakland become the first two municipalities to decriminalize certain psychedelic plants. So 
sort of all of this is happening at the same time. And I just wanted to lay out that landscape as kind of vast and complex um, and, and situate the research that's happening as uh, one important part of that. But just to say there's quite a bit happening right now in the, the world of psychedelics and botanical plants. So how do you fit into this world as, as a practicing, well, as a previously a resident and now a physician and a researcher like at Yale and probably like, it sounds like now you're part of a group that's very accepting, but maybe there is a transition phase to get these medical and clinical trials up. Yeah. So, so um, about five years ago, myself and, and several uh, others here at Yale started getting together to discuss specifically the, uh, the medical and psychiatric applications of these, these substances and really uh, thinking that this could represent something important for the field of psychiatry, mental health, and wanting to see, uh, you know, number one, just how to educate ourselves and eventually um, how to educate the broader Yale community about this set of research that's happening. Um, and also to look into doing research ourselves as became very interested in wanting to actually gain experience with these modalities and uh, understand how these treatments might work, for what conditions they might work, how they might be combined with other treatments like psychotherapies. So, you know, I think we set out very clearly to, uh, within that broad landscape to really focus on the medical and psychiatric applications and to sort of build out um, a real like rigorous educational program uh, around psychedelics. Because again, um, there's, there's a lot happening and given what the uh, part of the historical process that I won't go through was, you know, there's a whole story around Timothy Leary and Ron Doss and the researchers at Harvard who ended up uh, getting a little overzealous about their psychedelic research, maybe more than a little overzealous. <laughs> and uh, some of their actions ended up leading to uh, really the, the research getting shut down. And so I think we were quite uh, cautious about situating this squarely within the medical and psychiatric paradigm mm -hmm. um, and wanting to educate ourselves about it. So we started the psychedelic science group uh, and as I said, started off doing uh, doing research about it, and so that that built. I approached uh, Dr. Cyril D'Souza, who's one of the uh, researcher here in the Department of Psychiatry, and we we began working together. Uh, myself and another resident in my program, uh, Dr. Ryan Wallace, we started working together and developed a protocol to uh, study psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy as a treatment for major depressive disorder. We ended up incorporating a lot of EEG measures to look at uh, neurobiological impacts of the drug as well as the psychological and started putting all of this uh, together into a proposal. And we've finally been running the study over the last, uh, the last two years. And that's been really uh, gratifying work. How is the recruitment process for that? Are subjects like excited to take part in a psychedelic drug? Are they hesitant? I don't, I'm not really sure, like if I was a person suffering with, I guess, major depressive disorder, I'd probably be excited to try something new that might give me help. But I'm also just suddenly kind of scared of using psychedelics. And like, I think I would feel scared and would want to be walked through the process. Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think it's a combination of all those factors that you said. I think in general, there should be a healthy amount of apprehension and fear around using psychedelics, certainly. In moderate to high doses because it's a pretty uh, intense experience for sure. Um, and that's only more so if you're uh, someone who's already suffering from a diagnosable mental health condition, which would imply that you're struggling with a lot of things in general. Um, but, you know, I think it's been a really interesting several years. There's been a lot of in the media about psychedelics um, and as the studies have continued to show promising results. The media has really also um, highlighted this work, sometimes even getting a little ahead of where the science is at, uh, to, be, to be completely honest. 
We've had, had a lot of inquiries uh, for our okay. research program, and I think that's across the board with uh, psychedelic studies. I mean, there's been relatively few of them in the country, and the, you know, I think it speaks to a lot of things. There's a tremendous need for new treatments. Uh, a lot of people, I think, either the treatments we have currently available haven't either haven't worked or just aren't satisfactory to people, or they've been on medications for many years and want to get off. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think a lot of people now see, for better or worse, see psychedelics as as an alternative treatment modality, um, and in some cases, maybe even a treatment of last resort. So we do get quite a few people who've been through a lot of other treatments and then say, you know, uh, I've heard about this uh, psilocybin therapy. You know, I really have hopes that maybe this will be the thing that that works for me. But uh, Again, in the clinical trial setting, we have quite rigorous screening uh, and recruitment procedures. So uh, unfortunately, the majority of people don't qualify for the study who express interest. It's a bit... I know for some other um, like anxiety and depressive depression treating drugs, you kind of started as low dose and go up. Is that also true for this or because of the psychedelic you maintain at one level or... Yeah, good question. So uh, the model, one of the really interesting things about the the models of uh, psychedelic assisted therapy uh, that have been studied most recently is that they're uh, actually just very limited number of doses. You know, generally what's been studied is really, really only like one or two doses of the drug. It's not an oh, wow. ongoing uh, drug therapy. So that's one of the real distinguishing factors. There's several others which we can talk about as well. Um, But these, you know, it's not like an SSRI where you're on it every day. Although some people, there's talk of microdosing psychedelics, which is more of a pharmaceutical Mm -hmm. model, but that isn't really what has been studied in the majority of research. The majority of research have looked at um, one or two doses of pretty moderate to high doses of the psychedelic embedded within a a larger program of psychotherapy to support people through those experiences. And as far as, you know, you mentioned about like changing the dose, that's a, I think a future frontier. A lot of the studies now have sort of just picked a a fixed dose and kind of implemented that or or sometimes a weight-based dosing. there are, there are a few protocols that are a little bit ahead of the curve and are doing dose escalation paradigms, which I, my hunch will be that down the road when this is medicalized and there's a little more flexibility, I think there's a lot of reasons to start people with relatively lower doses so they can uh, get comfortable with what the drug feels like, realize that they can be supported. It's not, you know, you talked mm-hmm. about the, the fear associated and which is normal. Uh, but, you know, if someone can have sort of a moderate strength experience and realize that they're safe, they're okay, this is a, was actually a positive experience for them or, or challenging, but they made it through, um, then you might be able to increase the dose later on. But that, that hasn't really been looked at so, so much in the current trials, but I, I think it is a future direction. It's dose okay. And they take the dose in the care of a um, psychiatrist or their working therapist? Yes, yes, in the models that have been uh, that have been studied, for instance, in my study, um, which is run similar to to most of the studies. um, It's fairly intensive. Uh, People generally have actually two therapists or at least a therapist and a study physician working with them, um, both in the preparation ahead of the dose um, then supervising them throughout the dosing sessions, which are, you know, six to eight hours long. Um, and then again, the, you know, usually the day after and for the several weeks after they continue to meet with the therapists and physicians mm-hmm. to process that experience. Um, and that, that after phase is referred to often as integration, meaning sort of trying to integrate the psychedelic experience that was had with your uh, with your life and how, you know, how does that experience impact on your life? What other, what changes might be made in light of that experience? And so that's why um, these therapies are actually called psychedelic assisted therapies okay. uh, or psilocybin assisted therapy is that the medication 
essentially assists a, a, a therapeutic process. So this sounds, I mean, this is kind of a sidetrack, but it sounds like an extremely intensive therapy model, even without the psychedelics, like in a world where it seems like they're increasingly concerned that there's not enough therapists to match need. How would this fit in? Then in combination with the drug, you need so much therapy to, and, and so much one-on-one -on -one attention to get through the process. Yeah, you're, you're definitely hitting uh, the nail on the head with some of the, the really tough questions uh, facing the field. And this, you know, the prospect of commercialization and scale up is certainly a big one as the, these medications are entering uh, phase two and phase three trials. And I think there's, there's a few things I'd like to say about it. I mean, one is, I think the clinical trials are set up in a particularly a rigorous way to uh, both for safety and to maximize efficacy. And we'd want to, mm -hmm. you know, make sure that, yeah, you know, in an ideal setting with all this therapy that, yes, we see a good result. And, um, you know, in, in some of the cases, like with the MDMA therapy, the, the results even so far through the phase three trials are really looking quite robust. And, um, you know, in the case of that therapy, if if it does end up showing that the effect sizes are, you know, significantly larger than what's currently available, uh, I think it's going to be up to the fields, to us, to the researchers, and to actually make a case to insurance companies and governments that, mm -hmm. you know, this, the therapy as it is, um, or at least with that, rap the, that level of intensity is actually cost effective. You know, I mean, if you can prevent even one ER visit, one hospitalization. I mean, you've likely more than recuperated the cost of a therapist for, you know, 10 visits. I mean, it's, so I think there's, on the one hand, there's a little bit, um, you know, it's, there's excuses made for why we can't pay for therapy. I think we can pay for therapy. We can train mm -hmm. therapists, we can pay for therapists. It's more of a political will issue. Yeah. And that, you know, thus far, at least in our country, uh, insurance companies would often rather pay for drugs, uh, lower, re you know, lower resource intense uh, interventions than pay for a lot of therapy hours. But if we can show that the cost effectiveness, I think that could be a real game changer. And then on the other hand, I think we will do things to bring down the cost of the treatment to make them more feasible, for instance. And, and again, these are things that aren't as easy to test in the clinical trial setting. So some of the things that might be done is you might have only one therapist, not two. You might mm -hmm. have certain, uh, something that my colleague at UCSF looked at was doing the, still doing the dosing sessions individually, but doing all of the, uh, the debriefing and integration work as a group. So then mm -hmm. you're Again, doing group therapy models, significantly, uh, you know, a little more resource, less resource intense. Um, something that hasn't been look, looked at, but uh, may be possible depending on a lot of factors. I think it's further down the road is, is even doing the dosing uh, to some degree in groups or at least simultaneously. Um, you might have, you know, the model of community acupuncture where one acupuncturist treats multiple different patients who are in different rooms. So you may have a physician who's overseeing several different dosing sessions with say, a therapist in each room. Mm -hmm. uh, but to go back to the traditional context, we should also keep in mind that uh, botanical psychedelics like ayahuasca and a lot really most of them uh, were done in ceremonial settings, in groups, in families, in community. Uh, so I'm not suggesting that that uh, is what's going to happen in the treatment of mental illnesses, but it's at least something just to keep in mind that it's, there certainly is a precedent for doing that. In fact, quite yeah. a long tradition of, of doing that. I think there's reasons why it's complicated when you're doing it as a, as a medical intervention. Mm -hmm. Did those groups also have a, a post-drug like integration phase where they would take the drug one day and then when they moved through their life afterwards, they kind of had some sort of integration phase or it was just part of their culture. So everything was an integration. You're referring to more traditional or indigenous Yeah, sorry, uses. traditional use. Yeah. 
yeah, it's hard, I mean, it's hard to generalize, obviously, because there's many, many groups and many different traditions. But I think, um, in general, it's more the latter of what you said. I don't think there was so much of like this formal therapy process of like, we're going to now do it and then process. I think um, the, the key part to keep in mind about those contexts is that they were done, uh, they were already done in close knit family and community environments and everyone was living together and so it was kind of the integration I think happened a little more naturally whereas with patient populations it's really more of an individualistic approach and uh, it's there's less of a context for understanding that experience also in those traditions you know they were done for it was part of the culture it was there was a Mm -hmm. cultural context in which this was all occurring and a shared understanding. I think part of what we have to do in therapy in the West, where we don't have a long tradition of using these these drugs, is actually contextualize it, give it meaning, help people understand what this was all about. How was it helpful? How was it therapeutic? How was it yeah. not? Um, so, yeah, I think in general, it was certainly a less less formal integration process in the traditional uses. Yeah, I can imagine going through this treatment process like in the west and then if you don't have the integration phase you just kind of go back to work and you're like oh i've had this experience for six to eight hours a day before nobody else around you understands that or has been through that like there's just i don't know i think i see a lot of ways why you would need an integration phase yeah we we think that that's very important again it's it's one of the sort of empirical questions that needs probably needs to be looked at like what's the Mm -hmm. dose of psychotherapy that is helps optimize outcomes. I think it's still uh, yet to be determined, but in in my experience running the study, and I think the general consensus in the field is that those integration sessions are critical uh, to the success of it. And we've even had a few participants who, uh, you know, the day after didn't particularly feel great. It took a week, two weeks to let it settle out and kind of understand, you know, contextualize the experience and then uh, some of our participants started feeling better uh, a little bit after the, the session, but not directly after. Yeah. And we also, you know, part of that is about making the benefits last. I mean, I think uh, when you look at ketamine, for instance, which is another uh, psychoactive drug, I mean, you see um, strong effects for one to two weeks in terms of antidepressant response. And uh, that may be really the the neurobiological impact of the drug, creating some helpful changes in the brain, like neuroplasticity, rewiring, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and some, I think, and I do suspect similar things happen from psychedelic drugs. You might get a boost or a certain amount of impact just from the pharmacology of the drugs, which, which may be helpful, but without the integration part, I suspect you won't see as uh, the effects last as long. So if you, That's interesting. in, in yeah. our study, the model is, uh, at least where our hypothesis is that these drugs might induce a neuroplastic state or uh, the brain, putting the brain in a state where it can more easily form synaptic, synaptic connections um, and rewire itself. Well, you know, that, that's great and maybe helpful, but it's like, so what do you do with that heightened state of neuroplasticity if you don't make actual mm-hmm. practical changes in your life and lay down new patterns of thinking and behaving, then my, uh, I suspect you eventually may just, the old mold will return and you may go yeah. back to uh, depression. And we know uh, you know, the depression is a psychosocial illness. It's uh, well, biopsychosocial, rather. Uh, many different factors contributing, uh, certainly the biological and, uh, factors, but also uh, psychological and social factors that contribute to most of the mental health conditions. So we need to, uh, it's my belief is that we need to be acting on all those different levels with people. And that's really the beauty of psychedelic therapies compared to maybe standard drug treatment, which is focused really just on the biology, is that this treatment actually has the power to impact on all those different levels. We're uh, giving a medication that has strong biological impacts as well as psychological and psychosocial uh, impacts as well. And so we can leverage all of that to create Mm -hmm. hopefully a more effective treatment. 
So you've touched on this a couple of times in a couple of different ways, um, but how do you as a physician bridge the like the traditional use, especially since you're familiar with medical anthropology and how these drugs are traditionally used with how they're being medicalized and how you're using them in your clinical trials and then the future, which is likely commercialization. Yeah, this is probably one of the toughest questions you could have <laughs> asked me. Um, so I'll, I'll give it my best shot, uh, but I think it's you know, something that the field is really thinking about um, even more so now, now that commercialization is on the horizon, um, now that Black Lives Matter is forefront in society, we're thinking about social justice, or at least should be thinking about social justice um, as one of our primary concerns. And so I think in, in this case, um, for one thing, I think we need to be aware of a long history of uh, what's called biopiracy or extracting of indigenous knowledge uh, about botanical medicines and then commercializing them without adequately compensating the people from where this knowledge originates, essentially like a form of stealing. Um, and of course, traditional groups don't really play the intellectual property game, uh, at least haven't historically. And so there has been uh, a lot of unfair practices in that regard. And clearly we're at risk of this happening with psychedelics as well, which have, you know, I mean, psilocybin has been used for thousands of years uh, by different cultural groups. And now we're, it's on the verge of being commercialized and you have certain uh, commercial entities like, uh, like Compass Pathways is a for-profit uh, company funded by venture capitalists who have filed uh, use patents around psilocybin, trying to uh, you know, patent not necessarily the molecule, but actually certain forms of the molecule and then certain uses for it. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think we really, uh, on the one hand, need to be clear about recognizing the cultural history behind uh, the use of the psychedelics and uh, to that extent, we, it would help get us out of the mindset that we are, quote, discovering these things, uh, but rather we are borrowing from and innovating on these technologies that were developed long ago. Um, and, you know, it's been not only, not only from indigenous peoples, but from prior, uh, you know, now a century's worth of science. Uh, it's kind of been a a moving target. So, uh, and then, so in this view, I think we would look to learn from and form partnerships with different groups, including indigenous groups who hold a lot of knowledge regarding therapeutic uses of these plants. Um, and this is starting to happen to a degree, thanks to people like my colleague, Bia Labate, who's out in uh, the Bay Area, and she organizes conferences and has been doing so for a long time uh, that have the specific aim of actually bringing scientists and indiv indigenous healers together to have a dialogue about what these substances are, how they are best used, how indigenous peoples would like to see them used, what mm -hmm. they see as being sort of acceptable practice and not, how can we, you know, how can science benefit them, how can they inform our science, so to really have much more of a of a dialogue happening, I think is one thing that we, we need to continue to foster. So, um, you know, perhaps in the future, I think we will have studies that study sort of different therapeutic contexts, including some of these more shamanic contexts. Um, for instance, like one study that I was um, helped, I was looking at with a colleague of mine in Mexico. Uh, I thought this was really a brilliant study. She was looking to um, do a three-arm study, looking at the use of ayahuasca in the treatment of substance use disorders. And she had planned three treatment groups. One would receive treatment as usual through their mental health clinic. One would receive the treatment as usual, plus three guided introspective ceremonies with music, but no ayahuasca, no drug, just sort of putting in the, these intent, sort of intense ceremonial container, um, which can really, is quite powerful in its own, I believe. 
And then the third group would have the treatment as usual plus three ayahuasca ceremonies. Um, right. And so they, in that kind of model, you'd be able to separate a little bit um, the different components. And so uh, that trial, unfortunately, didn't, hasn't happened yet. But I think you might see something like that where you're able to now use science to help study uh, different ways of using these psychedelic plants and modalities and figure out, you know, are they safe? What might be optimal for different conditions or at least simply uh, for different patient preferences? Some people might, and I believe this to be very true, some people might really want uh, a highly medicalized context because they really feel comfortable in that setting whereas other people really don't want to be in a highly medicalized context or they're drawn to psychedelics precisely for the opposite reason, for the fact that they evoke yeah. a more spiritual kind of approach and people might want that. And so I think it's going to be up to us to demonstrate uh, what's safe and what's effective. And just to say one, one more thing about your, your last question about how to bridge the cultural mm -hmm. context, you know, in the face of, commercialization. I think the other thing I wanted to say is that I, uh, I think we also need to think carefully about how medicalization will impact uh, different communities, including indigenous communities and other marginalized communities, uh, both here in the U.S. and in other countries. Um, and just to keep in mind that medicalization will lead to the rescheduling of specific uh, isolated synthetic formulations of psychedelics, like Iso like synthetic psilocybin or MDMA, uh, but it, that alone won't do anything to change the legal status of psilocybin mushrooms, most likely. Uh, mm -hmm. That may come later, but I think you need to keep in mind that there may be barriers to receiving psilocybin therapy in its medical form, and that indigenous cultures are using psilocybin, the plant-based forms, and if we sort of leave those forms as illegal and stigmatized, uh, I think that's something that is, is problematic um, or at least needs to be thought through carefully about as these compounds move through the medical system, what, how are we treating them more broadly in the society and what is the impact on uh, different communities who may have used these these plants uh, more traditionally because they're not, some of them are protected under religious freedom, but some are not. So you briefly described some of the differences between creating a clinical trial for psychedelics. Um, can you comment more on what those differences are and, and what we commonly think of as a clinical trial for drugs or especially like over-the-counter medications that um, we commonly take? So it's a good question, uh, and I touched on uh, touched on this a little bit, but just to hit on a couple points that are uh, different in setting up clinical trials for psychedelics. Um, I mean, one one obvious one is they are Schedule One drugs, uh, which presents to some degree um, additional administrative barriers. There's, there's some amount of stigma around around them, but also now quite a bit of hype. So there's uh, a lot of now, in a way, because of the hype, a lot of expectancy that we're, we're dealing with and, and uh, prior preconceptions around what these drugs are. So that's, I think, uh, I mean, I, that happens with other drugs as well, but it's, it's quite heightened right now for psychedelics. Um, another big difference is that, you know, the gold standard in clinical trial research is the so-called double-blind randomized controlled trial meaning that the investigators nor the patients are supposed to know what <laughs> drug condition they received. Now you could imagine with when you're using moderate to high doses of psychedelics, it's not very easy to blind. They're essentially, they unblind themselves. Um, that, that said, I mean, there are a number of interesting cases, I think, where and there's, there's, a, there's different techniques that are being done to try to maintain some amount of the blind, but I think uh, no matter what, I mean, when you get a real, uh, in a lot, at least in quite a high percentage of cases, when you get a high dose of the psychedelic, it's pretty obvious. So blinding is a bit of a difference there. Um, and then the other big one that I just find quite interesting is 
um, considering what the intervention that is being studied. You know, in a, in a SSRI trial, you are studying the, the drug, you know, the impact of the drug on the brain, the patient ingests the drug and you then you see what happens. Um, it's not, you know, although there, there are some side effects, there may be to some degree an experience of taking the drug. There's not really like a strong subjective experience of taking an SSRI. Whereas with psychedelics, you take the drug and then you have, you know, at least at the doses we're using, then there's quite a profound experience that ensues. And a long held principle with psychedelics is that uh, you're never really just, you, you can't look at the effects of just a psychedelic drug. You have to consider what's called set and setting. And that means the set being sort of the mindset of the individual and then the setting being sort of the physical setting. And so, and, and what this, to give you an example, that means if I take 25 milligrams of psilocybin and give it to you in my study room with two physicians, um, with music, and it's a very safe and comfortable setting, you'll have, you might have one experience. Whereas if you take it out with your friends on the street somewhere, uh, you would likely have a very different experience from that exact same drug that I gave you. And the effects, the therapeutic effects, uh, are likely quite different depending on those set and settings. That's not fully been shown yet, uh, but I think it's a strong hunch that we have that the set and setting and the experience uh, impacts the clinical outcome. So to that extent, it's uh, quite a different thing that is actually being studied. It's this drug-assisted mm -hmm. therapy model, which I alluded to earlier. And so, you know, it's really actually a question for researchers and the regulators, like in the FDA, uh, you know, how do you regulate this? Because it's not, is it just a drug? Well, then the FDA knows how to regulate that. But if it's this uh, drug-assisted therapy, it's, it's a little confusing. And so um, I think uh, one of the issues with that is that, you know, some of the people trying to plant, put these medicines through the FDA are trying to reduce the psychotherapy component to actually make it look as much as they can like a standard drug trial so that the okay. FDA knows how to put it through because we want to uh, essentially reschedule it and get it approved for medical use or that's or at least see if it holds muster in those type of clinical trials but uh, that is quite a big uh, difference amongst how these studies are being run and raises these questions of how you know what what do we actually study is it mm -hmm. the drug is it the therapy how do you put that all together and uh that's one of the th things that we were doing in my study in particular was we were putting together this novel form of psychotherapy using acceptance and commitment therapy, pairing that with the psilocybin dosing sessions um, as a way specifically to sort of target depressive thoughts and behaviors um, and create some, some amount of momentum and lasting change beyond the dosing sessions. So uh, that would be something that would be a little tougher to uh, regulate, but I think what, what mm -hmm. might end up happening is that you, you know, if you put uh, psilocybin through the clinical trials, it ends up getting rescheduled, and then there'll be a little more leeway to pair the drug sessions with other therapeutic modalities, and hopefully we'll be able to do some further studies on it to see the efficacy of combining these different uh, techniques, but just the first step is getting it through the FDA process. You know, just to end, like my personal vision, um, I wrote a book chapter a couple of years ago about a model model clinics uh, for psychedelics. And what I mean, what I think would be most exciting, at least for me in the field, is is uh, sort of offering this different paradigm of of treatment, one that. Uh, really looks to address root causes of suffering and mental health problems um, and help people live healthy and fulfilling lives, you know, rather than just say managing symptoms with some of the current drugs that we have. I think psychedelic approaches offer the promise, uh, especially offer promise for people who are really looking to do some deep uh, therapeutic work 
really take a look at their traumas, look at where depression comes from, look at their behaviors and really, you know, really make some significant changes in their lives. I think it offers that. And in fact, often uh, in the psychedelic sessions, you get confronted by these things that you can't really, it's hard to have a strategy of avoidance when you're uh, engaging in psychedelic therapy. So um, I think that's exciting. It may not be for everyone, but it maybe offers the promise of some really deep healing. And in order to achieve that, I think uh, we, I'd like to see psychedelics delivered as part of integrated approaches, integrated wellness clinics that offer a range of therapeutic services that can be tailored to individual patients, um, which help them integrate the, their psychedelic experiences and translate them into lasting changes in their lives. So um, part of this involves finding ways to be more connected uh, you know, to yourself, to other people, to community, to nature around you. So in a, a more holistic kind of model, these therapies might be uh, integrated you know, not only with individual psychotherapy, but group psychotherapy, community wellness activities, um, as well as maybe uh, activities that help connect you to nature and the world around you. Uh, so that's ultimately, uh, I think, a vision that a lot of people in the field have and that uh, certainly would feel exciting as a thera therapeutic practitioner. Uh, might be challenging to study from a research standpoint, but I think uh, sets out a direction for research that could well, probably last my entire career, uh, <laughs> not beyond. So uh, it's an exciting field and very, been, it's really been a pleasure to be part of it. And especially working with the, uh, the participants in the research has just been such an incredible process that it motivates me to, to continue uh, working in this field and uh, and seeing what what the results are and seeing what what's possible with these, yeah. these treatments. It's really great that you're getting involved in what kind of sounds like the rebirth of studying psychedelics and and that sounds like you found a niche that works with both your background with your background as a physician and studying anthropology. Like it's really kind of come together and that makes me feel confident in, in that knowing that the physicians that are studying these drugs are interested in the full picture of how these psychedelics came about, how they work and how they're going to progress in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been really great talking to you and um, there are many people behind this podcast that uh, you never get a chance to hear. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM on the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Thank you to the YJBM editorial board, especially our editors-in-chief, Amelia Hallworth and Wei Ng, and the deputy editors for the med medicinal plants issue, Kavita Israni Winger and Nathan Batchtal. Finally, thanks to you for tuning into this episode of YJBM Podcast. We love your, we'd love to hear your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts by emailing us at yjbm at yale.edu.